Hello and welcome to the Upper Left Performance Podcast. I am your host, Jack Anderson. Today on the show, we got ourselves Rob Campbell, the head strength and conditioning coach for the Detroit Red Wings. Rob has experience with the Red Wings, New York Mets, and the St. Louis Blues. And during his career, he spent a lot of time working with force plates. Uh, That's the reason why I brought Rob on today. I wanted to go in-depth on force plate technology and what it can bring to the table as a strength and conditioning coach, how it can affect exercise selection, uh, your assessments of biomechanical abilities and neurological readiness. Uh, And Rob goes in-depth on all of that for me. He really pushed my understanding of force plates to the next level with this conversation and taught me that there really is no... Uh, necessarily right or wrong answers when we're looking at this data. They're ju- it's just helping us frame uh, what an athlete's strength and strengths and weaknesses are, enabling us to have conversations with uh, coaches in regard to uh, and players in regard to uh, this technology, and then of course how to uh, tie all that together and look at it through different lenses to help our analysis of how to achieve the highest level of performance with each athlete that we work with. Without further ado, here's Rob. Enjoy. Rob, thanks so much, man, for coming on to the, the podcast. Uh, obviously, you just told me it's snowing in Detroit, so you probably have nothing better to do but sit in your house and wait for it to blow over. So I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I know. Thanks for having me. It's uh, We'll be good here. Yeah, it's, it, it's snowing here today, so it snowed out on Wednesday as well, and you're just kind of wondering what's going on right now in the world. <laughs> it's, you know... <laughs> It's one of the saving graces we've had it, it is a little bit warmer weather than normal. And then this week's just been cold. So you haven't really been able to get out, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get through it. Well, I, I guess I can't complain too much. It was 80 here yesterday and I was like, all right, here we go. And it's 59 this morning and, uh, you know, over here in California. And, and I guess I can't complain too much though, if I'm talking to you. So <laughs> no, no, I mean, uh, we're looking at 50s, high 50s this weekend tomorrow. So it's snowing today and then high 50s tomorrow. And oh, good. Get that awful, shit. So get that shit right out of here. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, Eric Renahan from the blues is really uh, cool him to, to connect us. Um, I've been going down this force plate rabbit hole a little bit. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but um, take me through your background a little bit, how you, how you started working for the red wings and kind of what led up to that um, just to help the listeners kind of know where you're coming from. Yeah, I guess um, start off with kind of in 2000 and, 15, I moved out to uh, St. Louis to do a, a graduate assistantship at uh, Lindenwood University. And so <clears throat> while I was at Lindenwood, um, an opportunity came up with, with the St. Louis Blues to be a volunteer assistant. Um, the, the kid who had worked there previously had actually gotten a, a job with the Cardinals, and it was, it was mid-year, and uh, they, the Blues had a working relationship with Lindenwood. So I was able to, um, to do a graduate assistantship with, with Lindenwood full-time and then work with the Blues um, full-time kind of as a volunteer assistant and then at that time it was the only assistant that they had with uh with Nelson Ayotte and then um, Nelson ended up leaving that summer and then Eric came in and uh, to be honest with you uh, I was actually not going to do the volunteer position for my second year of my GA just because it, it, it really really was a lot but um, you know Eric kind of once I got to know him because I was still doing the internship during the summer um, you know he he asked me if I wanted to stay and, and you know uh, kind of just between talking to him and getting to know his personality and my personality, we really meshed together. And um, I decided, you know, I'm going to stay on. And uh, it was it was the best decision that I could have made. So um, so I did the the volunteer position for two years with with um, Linda Wood and then with Linda Wood and the Blues. And then 
I graduated in, in 2017 with my master's and uh, we had lost, I think it was to the Predators, it was like two days after I, I graduated and then uh, kind of went down that, that job search because the Blues didn't have a, a fully funded assistant position. And um, you know, I actually ended up moving back to Boston, I was living with my parents for a week and then the Blues said, hey, you know, we have a, a fully funded assistant position for you if you want to come back to St. Louis. I'd, couple interviews with other teams and it was kind of like do you want it you know that you've already done your interview we know you're the guy that we want and uh really for me it was a no-brainer so I, I actually packed up moved right back into where I was living and um, I was with the Blues up, up until last year uh in January with, with an opportunity with the Mets the New York Mets um came up so I in January actually I, I left the, the Blues and, and went with the Mets as their uh, major league performance coach now I was one of two of the major league performance coaches and it was a high performance model. So kind of looking at that, it, it was, it was really something that I knew moving forward would, would benefit me a lot to a get a different perspective and B move into a, a fully functional high performance model, trying to build something from the ground up where you had two PTs, you had two ATCs, we had two strength coaches, a director and a sports scientist. And we were all kind of trying to mesh together. Um, so that was a really, really good experience. Really, really smart people there. Um, help, I think it helped me grow leaps and bounds, to, to be honest with you, as far as seeing things from a, a different perspective and also having people with differing opinions than you. Because when I was with Eric, you know, we were pretty much had the same opinions on everything. So it worked really, really well. Well, now you're going to have to get into a, a position where, you know, you have people with other other viewpoints and you got to be able to take those because no matter where you work you're always going to have to see other viewpoints and, and kind of look at what you're doing more critically so it was really good and by the end with the Mets it, it was a really really good experience and then the opportunity came up with the Red Wings um, to be the head strength and conditioning coach there and and I knew I had to take it uh, didn't really want to leave the Mets but I knew it, it had to be a perfect position and and this was something that you know I'd worked for for a while so I said you know what you know, you can you only live once, so you might as well do it. So, uh, you know, then the season I, I packed up, and then I went right back in, in, into hockey this year, and uh, kind of led me to where we are now. How's that? Um, how's that experience been so far? What are you? So, I, I don't know anything about the the Red Wings organization. So, is it is it a high performance model? Or are you just more working with those more of a smaller staff? Kind of what's what's been going on there, and where do what do you want want to change it into um, or develop it into? So right now. Um, it's our first year where we, we kind of moved over to the, the hockey high performance model where we have um, a director, we have a director of sports science, and then we have me, um, I oversee all the strength and conditioning, and then we have two ATCs, a physical therapist, and we have a, a data scientist as well. So it, it, it is the kind of high performance model that, that we're looking for, and we have um, you know, full support from our, our management and everything as far as what do you need? What do we need to be better? And, and kind of moving on there. So we're, we're in our first year, I guess, first six months really of kind of transitioning over. And um, it, it's been really, really good as far as a, being able to blend in. So we have two ATCs who have been there, you know, for a very long time. And then we have a, a PT who's also my assistant strength coach and the data scientist who we all kind of work together and we've been able to, to blend very, very well. So um, that's kind of that, that situation there. And then um, we also, for me, I'll oversee the, the minor league. So the AHL strength and conditioning, and then also the prospects. So it's kind of been a, a catch all now with where we are in, in April, where we're trying to plan for next season, but we don't know if we're going to come back and play our remaining 10 games or whatever. And we're also a, 
an organization that's going through a huge transition as far as um, you know kind of where we are and and we're really a development um, team at, as far as what we're looking to do we're trying to build for you know two to three years down the road but always in professional sports is about winning so you you want to win but we also know we're looking at the, at the kind of the longer picture um that's that's interesting to me too so you're you're implementing this model and obviously um I don't, if you're not comfortable speaking about this, it's fine. But I mean, you're kind of implementing this model and the coaching staff, there was no, like, there was no changes at the top. I know. Right. So, um, that, that's also like interesting to me in that sense, you know, like it's not a complete overhaul of the entire like staff on both sides. Like I'm sure this coaching staff has some getting used to, to like what you guys are bringing to the table and everything too. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the coaching staff's actually been very, very good. Uh, you know, they, they want to, to make more informed decisions. So, the biggest thing for us is trying to simplify it down. You know, you can, you can go in and you can give them all the data that you want, but at the end of the day, if you give them things that just is not simple, not simple enough for them, they're going to say, go back, you know, redo it, make it simple. Tell me what I need to know, you know, how long, how hard should practice be today? Who should practice? Who shouldn't if we're at a certain point, like I don't need to know, you know, what this guy's, you know, RSI is. I, I don't care. I don't know what that is. You know, like I don't, I, you know, can, why can't this guy practice today? Why can't he? And, and kind of go from there. Where are we relative to last week? Where are we relative to the months before as far as our, our workload and our practice load? And, and just tell us that, make it simple and, and move forward. I think a lot of times with, with sports science and, and strength and conditioning is we get in love with, you know, making all these charts and graphs. But at the end of the day, the decision makers don't, don't want that. They want something very, very simple. So you need to give them the, the simplest version and, and, you know, kind of like, like you say, you know, like simplicity is the ultimate sophistication sometimes and uh, just, just giving them what they need. So this transitions just nicely that into, into the force plate discussion, which is where I really wanted to go today. Um, what are you, I mean, just, we can speak generalities before diving into to whatever particular topic on this issue, um, you know, strikes us of interest, but uh, what are you doing in general to, you know, with your force plates? What's the main reasons why you're using them? And then what are you doing to kind of get that data simply into the hands of the players and, and or coaches? So I, I guess it, we're in season right now. So I kind of go into our in season um, use of the force plates. So that's uh, every, every time that we're home after a day off, I'll, I'll have the whole team jump if they're able to. So the, the idea behind that is we want them to be as fresh as possible when we're doing it, because we're looking at a number of different things. And a lot of times, if you're going to do it after, say, if you do it every Tuesday, well, you might play Monday night, one night, you might not play the other. So it's just kind of to, to keep it the same throughout. So we'll jump every day after a day off when we're home, which usually ends up being you know, once a week or sometimes it's every other week, but it all really depends upon our schedule. So that, and we, we kind of use it as, as a, you know, kind of check-in, right? Just kind of see what's going on. So I'll, I'll use it that way um, in season. And then I'll also use it um, as far as, as game day mornings sometimes. So sometimes we'll have a optional morning skate and, um, Sometimes we, the way that the schedule works out, we'll have to do post-game lifts. So what I've tried to do with guys, especially in this this past February, was get them to do a potentiation lift in the morning. And I would get them to jump before, pre and post, just to kind of show them. Because one of the biggest apprehensions that 
that you get with, with guys is, is this going to make me tired? So if you can show them um, as far as the, this isn't making you tired, right? Before and after, we can get into it a little bit more, but um, you know, that, that's one of the biggest things say, hey, this was you before, this was you after our, our lift. Do you feel tired, you know, and then kind of checking in at night with them as well. How do you feel? And it's actually gone really, really well. And it was just a way for me to get some really meaningful, um, you know, power work in in the mornings when we really don't have a, a time for it. Uh, so those are the two kind of main ways in season that I'll use them. Also use them for some some exercises such as um, kettlebell swings and just looking at at the the average forces over over that time period to kind of pick an appropriate um, weight for, for the guys. Um, that's just another way. And, and that's, that's kind of the basics, but, but the, the biggest one obviously is going to be the counter moving jump. Yeah. Um, that's very interesting. So are a lot of teams doing uh, this, this pre or post morning skate lift before games now, or like, cause most of the coaches I talked to, it always seems to be like a post game thing. Um, yeah, so is this so- like new? I, I don't know if it's it, not necessarily. So my, what, what I do with it is if the guy goes and skates, then he's not going to do his lift. He's not going to do a morning lift, but usually it, it's in lieu of that morning skate. So a lot I of see. our guys, a lot of our guys would, would they don't want to do the morning skate, but um, you go and you look at, and a lot of times if they don't do their morning skate, they're just kind of, they're slugs, you know, and then they feel more sluggish at night. So the, the feedback that I was getting from some guys is I just, I don't feel like I have that, you know, that little extra step at at night when I'm not doing the morning skate, you know, like, what can I do? And then, um, so that was kind of the way that I thought would, would best serve their time where you're able to get some meaningful work in it and it's going to kind of enhance their, their neuromuscular performance at night. So that's kind of the way that I looked at it, looking at all the research, it, it, it will not affect them negatively at night because we've we know that the kind of neuromuscular fatigue that could be associated will dissipate if it's done early enough so it 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 really for me was a no-brainer and and that was kind of the way that I looked at it are you are you keeping like with those workouts I I would imagine volumes low you're just looking for some sort of like short high intensity type stuff in terms of a stressor and then keep it short like on the tissue yeah Yeah. Yeah, absolutely um you know, that, that's one of the biggest things. All of our lists in season, I guess, are going to really be microdosed anyway, as it is. So um, they're short, they're, and they're, they're high intensity, and then we're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so no more than, you know, 20 minutes. And um, it's just really, really getting meaningful um, work with, with a very with great intent to kind of move on from there. So that, that was just kind of the idea, because when you, we played – I think it was 16 games in 29 days in uh in February with a lot of with I think maybe 11, 10 of them on the road. So uh, you know we had a very very condensed schedule because we have that week off in January. Um, so you really got to look at your time frames and, and when you can actually put a stressor on them or or when you can actually get some good meaningful lifts in, and um, that's just an opportunity that I saw with, with some of the guys. And it was funny in the beginning, you know, it was maybe two or three. And then some of the guys, you know, they were like, well, what, why is he doing that? And like, well, this is why. And then they asked him at night, well, how'd you feel? They're like, oh, I felt really good. And then all of a sudden <laughs> then, you know, you're going to get, enough, you get more and more guys and, and it, it works out really well. And then you're not having to deal with, with a post game lift where 
you know, we've we struggled a bit this year where, you know, guys are down after and that will affect their, their mood and sometimes it affects the lifts. It's just, for me, it, it was really a no-brainer. Yeah, I like that concept a ton. Now, do you find, um, just speaking about either neuromuscular or tissue stress, for example, like, do you find some guys prefer to do, like, a little more uh, volume instead of intensity maybe or something like Like, uh, you know what I'm kind of talking about? Like, I know some people will talk about how they like to do a higher volume lift with lower intensity to kind of flush things out, you know, you know, in terms of like metabolites and whatnot, or, or uh, do you find that everybody just prefers to do the neuromuscular stuff? So that's another thing when you, when you look at it, it, it if you're doing a post game lift, you really can't do any power work. It's going to have to be strength work. Um, the guys are, are neuromuscularly kind of, they're fried by the end of the game depending upon how many minutes they played or whatever, we'll totally work out that way. But, you know, a guy's not going to go play and then we're not going to ask him to do um, hang cleans. We're not going to ask him to do box jumps. We're not going to it's, you're going to really, really be playing with disaster there. So, um, you know, it, it's more just a strength workout and it's just higher intensity, low volume. And I, I really try not to have a post game lift. I try to do it, um, you know, a day after, but um, you know, it's kind of just the way, the way that it goes yeah yeah that's that's interesting to me I've been kind of playing around a lot, a lot with that with myself just seeing on certain days how like I kind of tailor everything for myself with a like three days that are higher intensity or my bank those are my bang for my buck sessions and then the lower days I always kind of play around with do I would I perform more volume and less intensity or more intensity and less volume but I keep them all short so I just microdose whichever one that I want in there yeah and, I mean uh, if if we have guys who who play a, a high amount of minutes. So we'll kind of tier, tier it. Um, they will have a, a lift that will, will actually use um, BFR. So, and then the idea is you can still get high motor recruitment um, and it's going to be a little more volume, but you can still kind of get that intensity up by, by utilizing BFR. And then you're not putting that, that huge amount of stress on them. And it, it also will accelerate their, um, their recovery. So it really depends upon the athlete and what they want to do and, you know, what their week has looked like, what their game looked like if you're doing a post-game lift or even the, the next day. Um, so that, that's kind of the way that we go with that is it really depends upon the, the athlete. Yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. I think that's really cool. I was talking to a couple other coaches about um, AHL coaches who were talking about how they have to um, – sometimes they need that um, – that high intensity, but they, don't, they can't load it for work, you know, based on where they are in, in the season or what's going on, like in that training or that week of games and whatnot. And yeah. they'll do like a, you know, isometric mid thigh pool or some sort of overcoming isometric to get that high internal load. But at the same time, it's not taxing the body quite so much. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I really wouldn't use um, the, the really high intensity isometrics post game but um you know it's but it's, it's so it's, it's, so it's something you could maybe use before a game but again you wouldn't it wouldn't be something yes. you'd want after okay okay <clears throat> yeah absolutely okay cool cool no that's awesome yeah you got me got me thinking there that's really awesome so now let's get back to the force plate side of things um you were talking you know you mentioned counter movement jump obviously you're looking at at readiness and stuff like that um now are you using force plates like Eric is a little bit to influence exercise selection for guys based on their uh, abilities? Yeah. So I, I guess I'll, I'll kind of get into the different layers that we use as, as far as, as force plates. So when we look at it, we're, we're looking at uh, 
you know, creating a profile for the athlete, kind of their movement profile. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at their, their jump strategy as far as how they move and, and um, to kind of see, okay, well, what should I be doing? Does this guy, does this defenseman look like a defenseman should look like as far as their, their profile? Does this goaltender look like a goaltender? Does the winger look like a winger? And then kind of go from there. So we absolutely will. And we'll, we'll, create percentile ranks based off the the metrics that we use to kind of create an exercise selection and and go from there with the guys so when we look at at the jump strategy uh, we're going to try to try to see well if they don't look like what we think the defenseman should look like what what is the issue is it neurological or is it biomechanical so a lot of times if you see someone like with a defenseman say and and they say, you know, he looks slow or whatever. And then we jump in it and his breaking rate of force, his eccentric, you know, deceleration is, is low. His average relative concentric force is lower. And then he has a really, really high, you know, uh, propulsive impulse, right? So we're saying he, he utilizes momentum well. He doesn't really utilize the stretch shortening cycle. And say, well, why is that? You know, is it biomechanical? Is it something going on where, where he has some type of movement restriction? Or is it neurological where he has, he just, he's not strong enough in, in certain movements. So you kind of look at that and try to, try to really dig deep into it. Um, so what, what I'll say is the, the force plate assessment that we use is just one piece of the puzzle. And it's kind of on the front lines of what we do. So if a guy has a normal strategy where he utilizes a stretch shortening cycle very, very well, and maybe he doesn't utilize momentum and he's not able to get into his posterior chain. And then he comes in on a, on a Monday and all of a sudden his profile looks completely different on that one day. You need to kind of dig into that and say, okay, well, his, his movement strategy completely changed, right? And you'll say, well, is it because of biomechanics? Is there something going on where he has a movement restriction? Or is it neurological where he's actually gotten he's got something weak or, or something's going on there, or is it neurological where he's not, he doesn't have readiness, right? So there, there's a couple different things you need to look at. And there's a, there's a bunch of different layers that we look at. So we have the, the four metrics that we look at. We'll look at breaking impulse, breaking RFD, average relative concentric force, propulsive net impulse, and we'll look at stiffness impulse ratio. And then we'll also look at counter movement depth and the stiffness impulse ratio counter movement depth what we'll do is we'll have we'll have those separate metrics. They're not scored, and it's just individual based on the the athlete. And we'll we'll have the average from the day, and then we'll have standard deviations, one above, one below, to kind of see that. Because um, you need to know what a meaningful change is as well, right? So we'll have those, and then we'll look at at our readiness. So we'll look at you know flight time to contraction time. We'll look at time to take off with um, you know eccentric and concentric durations, and then um, take off velocity. So those are kind of the layers, and then. We'll do the same thing with those kind of neural readiness markers with the flight time contraction time where we'll have the the standard deviation of one above one below because usually the guys will kind of fall into that and usually from from most of our guys is they'll come in and there'll be nothing wrong right and it's probably about 97 percent of the guys everything's pretty pretty standard you know it, it's those one to two percent of guys that you'll look at and you'll say oh something's going on so we'll have that as far as the readiness um, and then we'll also look at the asymmetry. So we'll look at each, each phase of the jump. So we'll look at left, right, eccentric breaking impulse index. We'll look at the propulsive index left, right. In, and then we'll look at the landing impulse index as well. And then we'll see that 
above and we'll say, okay, well, is it, <clears throat> if it's, you know, biomechanical it, or neurological is because of maybe they're, they're favoring one side to another more, right? And, and they're breaking and is it maybe an injury risk factor, right? And, and kind of go from there um, as far as, as what we're looking at. So there's a lot of different layers that we look at. It's just being able to see it and say, well, you know what, it's his, his asymmetries are, are normal, right? There's a good variability on, on each jump. Um, you know, his, his neurological markers are actually down and that's why, you know, his, his eccentric rate of force is down, right? And then from there, if we're looking to build out the program from the day, I'm not gonna ask this athlete to do a, a, a very, very hard lift because he's, he's, he's neurologically, he's, function is kind of depressed i'll i'll move up more on to you know a recovery lift right with with a little less less intensity and, and try to accelerate recovery for that guy because he's not ready for that or if we're looking at it and we actually see that you know his asymmetry is has completely changed and he's usually you know six percent to his left and all of a sudden he is 18% to his left. We're saying, uh-oh, what, something's going on. He is switched over. Maybe that's an injury. Or, or we just say, okay, well, where do we go from this next as far as that goes? And what we do is we kind of – it just drives greater conversation. And what we'll do then after that, we'll say, well, again, is it biomechanical? Is something going on? Is it related to musculature? What, what is going on? And kind of say, hey, I'm moved to the – our physical therapist say, Hey, can you check? I'll go back and I'll look at what were their restrictions before when we do our kind of orthopedic assessment, we do our range of motion and we'll do isometric testing as well on each joint, you know, like, Hey, this guy generally, he, he has very, very poor, um, you know, ankle dorsiflexion. And when I'm looking at, at the graph, um, you know, the, he, he has a, a huge force leak in, in that eccentric breaking rate of force is and it looks like there's a, there's a huge hitch in his ankle. Can, can you just check dorsiflexion? And then maybe it's just that, you know. And so it's kind of doing that and utilizing the team around you because I still have to do the strength and conditioning side where you say you kind of refer out and then they'll do an assessment and see or like, hey, I I know that his hip internal um, rotation is was pretty poor. It looks like it, you know his his impulse has gone down. His concentric impulse has gone down. You know. Is there some type of, of hip internal rotation issue where it, it's range of motion or strength? And we'll check that and we'll try to get ahead of it. Um, it, it really just depends upon the, the athlete and kind of where we are. And it's utilizing the resources around you. That's all, dude, what an answer. I really like that a ton. Um, just how you tied it all in at the end with, with the performance model. That's making a ton of sense to me. Now, you mentioned a bunch of variables, right? Um, the two that are interesting to me, at least in, in, in the discussions I've had this week with various coaches and everything, are um, uh, the, like eccentric braking and then concentric propulsion. And I know there were, you, you had a couple different metrics for both of those. But um, Eric kind of did a good – Eric did a great job laying out to me kind of uh, what we're looking for um, uh, from defensemen, which is going to be more eccentric braking, and then forwards, which is more propulsive. Uh, at least in terms of what they're doing on the ice and what their profiles are telling him. Um, is that, is that kind of accurate? Yeah. So I, I, I will say, you know, I, I learned a ton from Eric and a lot of what I do is, is from him. So um, we'll, we'll look at that. What, what I will say is 
that there, there can be a very, very high um, covariance on, on the eccentric braking RFP where it can be 14% sometimes as high as that. So, and it can be very, very sensitive to your neural state. So um, the average relative concentric force and propulsive net impulse when, when we're looking at that, um, those will kind of tell you like the athlete, what type of athlete they are, as well as kind of the, um, the impulse ratio. Like does this athlete utilize a stretch shortening cycle well, or is he more someone who was more muscular? Um, he, he relies more on musculature and, and you kind of go from there. So what we'll see with, with our defensemen a lot of times or, or different skaters is that they have a really, really high breaking rate of force. They have a really high average relative concentric force. And then, their propulsion that impulse is really, really low, right? And we'll look and we'll say, well, we'll talk to coaches and we'll say, well, what's the deal with this guy? Like, well, he has a very, very quick first step, you know, and then he kind of loses it, right? And <clears throat> we'll say, well, is that good for a defenseman where they're in tight and they're, they're generally relying upon stretch shortening cycle and really their quads because in that very, very short range of motion, they're going to kind of, default over to, to their quads. So we're saying, okay, well, you know, that's probably pretty good for a defenseman, but if I'm looking for a forward who needs to be able to accelerate through it and continue on producing force throughout the, 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 um, the ice, like that's probably not the best thing. And you'll, the best thing to do is to talk to coaches and say, does this guy look fast here or here, or what do you, what would you change about this guy? And then kind of relate that over to the athlete when you're, you're going on your exercise selection. Um, that, that's one of the biggest things that, that I, I look at. So we'll have those profiles and then kind of build it off. And again, we'll, we'll say, is it, is his, um, his kind of issue, is it from pure biomechanics or is it, you know, neurological? Because you need to be able to differentiate that and say, maybe his issue, the reason why he can't really, get into much extension and he can't utilize momentum well is because of, a, of mobility restrictions, right? Or maybe it's just because he is so trained to be very, very quick in those, those tight kind of circumstances where his body, that, that, that feedback loop just tells him that's what he needs to do. Um, so it, you kind of want to look and you want to differentiate between those two um, and then kind of go from there. Um, so with, Am I looking at this correctly by saying, or it sounds to me like we're talking about like either force driven kind of muscle guys that are, that are going to push uh, in terms of like their stride, like they're maybe more pushers. And then we look at someone that's a little more fascially driven. They're a little more quick twitch. Is that kind of like what we're breaking this into based on that or? Yeah. It, you, that, that's generally what you're going to, you're going to see with guys. Um, and so, you know, if you have someone who, is very very quick and they 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 might utilize more more tendon for kind of passive structures as far as the way that they they utilize force and you'll kind of see this with with a lot of the younger guys and they're not quite as developed but they kind of have that natural ability right the natural explosiveness and that they'll have a really really high average relative concentric force and that's something if you see it on someone you're like this is someone you can work with because eccentric breaking RFD and propulsive of an impulse, those are very, very trainable. The average relative concentric force, that's, that's kind of that natural ability. And if, if someone doesn't have it, you can change it, but it takes time. It takes a lot of time. So that, that's kind of the way you can break it down and then go from there. So that's, that's really getting me going now. So if we're, 
talking about positions then, which are forwards or defensemen, defensemen are going to, or I'm sorry, uh, forwards are, are more likely maybe to, and I hate to like blanket it, but I'm just trying to get a general picture. Um, forward forwards might be prone to having more of that high uh, relative concentric average relative concentric force. Uh, yes, like am I, is that more of a propulsive thing? Yeah, usually they'll have it with a, a winger. They'll have um, higher higher propulsive net impulse, <clears throat> and then the average relative concentric force is right behind it. And the braking RFD is is a little bit lower with with the braking net impulse, just given the nature of, of it. And usually centers the centers are usually the most kind of gifted athletes where you'll see that average relative concentric force be higher than everything, you know, and, and then kind of going from, from there. So usually the wingers will, will, they utilize momentum a little bit more because they don't really have to be quick and tight, right? They can kind of go straight ahead and <clears throat> they don't generally, they, when you're in the defensive zone, they're, they're not having to work like a, a defenseman does and they get the puck and they kind of go. So they can utilize momentum a little bit more. So it's just kind of looking at that and going from there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This is making a ton of sense to me. Now you mentioned uh, breaking force being more trainable. What are, what are you doing or, uh, in your training programs? Like in terms of like developing that type of thing, like what are some of your go-tos? Uh, so for the breaking RFD, uh, what I've found a lot of times uh, is that the breaking RFD and average relative concentric force, uh, depending upon the, the thing that you want to do, if you look at a rate of force, so it's, it's moving quickly. So you got to move with intent when you do it. Um, so if you, you're looking at something like I'll, I'll give the, the morning kind of potentiation lift. Um, I'll, I'll kind of get into that maybe with, with how I would train it. So for the guys who sometimes say that they don't have that kind of that they don't feel great. And uh, when they jump, usually they're, they're more prone towards that propulsion, that impulse. And I say, okay, well, I, what I want to do today, I'll show them the, the graphs and I'll say, I want to bring these two up right now, as far as the breaking RFD and average relative concentric force, we're going to bring these two up. Right. And when you say that, you better be able to back it up because then you could kind of lose. So it, it's, oh, yeah. <laughs> so what I do is I'll kind of, I'll have them do a, you know, a trap bar jump and I'll kind of work from the heaviest weight and then I'll kind of scale it down to the lightest weight. So we'll go with, as far as using we use the gym aware and we'll say, I want you to move the first, first one is going to be 1.5. The next one will be 1.7. And the last one going to be, I want 2.0 and we'll go from the heaviest weight to the lightest weight. As far as, as far as we're doing that to kind of tell them they need to produce force really quickly and their body's still thinking that they're moving that, that heavier weight, pair that up with something reactive. Um, so some type of reactive plyometric and, and then, um, usually I'll do some type of overhead med ball slam depending upon the day and um, some type of core, right? Do about three rounds with, with a three-minute break in between, right? And then after they finish their, their third round, we wait about a minute to two minutes and then we'll have them jump again. And then we'll say, hey, I say, hey, I bet you this is going to go up because they're potentiated, right? Bet you your jump height's going to go up, breaking RFDs up, and average relative content of course. Like, bet you those are going to go up. They're like, okay, and then they feel good and they jump through the roof, right? Because if we, we know that's going to work, right? But then those two qualities go up too. And they, they say they, they feel quicker. And then at night, they, they feel like they're able to produce force really, really quickly. And if you're looking at, you know, a defenseman, he's going to need to do that. You know, if it's a battle for the puck and you're in the corner, 
the guy who can get there the quickest in a short amount of time is is going to win that. So they, they feel better. And then you know, they also say, hey, like, I thought this was going to make me tired, and it didn't. But you need to be really, really precise with what you do. And, and that's kind of the way that I look at it. And then um, say if someone is – as the high breaking RFD and average relative concentric force, what, what I'll do is I'll have a propulsion that impulse that they'll do, right? And it's the same kind of idea, but now we're looking to get into more extension. We're looking to get a little bit more time under tension. We'll do that lift, come back, and the breaking RFD and the average relative concentric force will stay pretty steady. The jump height will go up a little bit. It's not as dramatic as the, um, the RFD lift, but, that propulsion, that impulse will come up and everything kind of stabilizes from there. So those are the, the two main ones that I look at. And then the guys say, oh, I do feel better because I, I'm naturally inclined to do one thing, but I'm, now I feel like I'm kind of balanced out. And the, the impulse is going up because we're just spending a longer time applying force, right? Is that Yeah, correct? so like okay. uh, things like, you know, the um, kettlebell swings, um, you know, sled drags, things like that. That, that are going to get you a little bit more into extension, have to utilize your posterior chain. It takes a little bit more amount of time than the very, very quick rate of force lifts. And then that's kind of training, again, it's training the mind to produce more force over time. And then all of a sudden they go and they, they go to the lift and they're able to, again, kind of bring that up. So it, it helps. And a lot of times guys will say, you know, like, I feel like when I'm on the ice, uh, I move a million miles an hour, but I'm, I'm going nowhere. Well, those are your guys who have the – have that high RFD and it's like I'm going to try to help you be able to go longer a longer duration of applying that force they say okay um, so that that's kind of what we do there and then they feel they just feel better you know yeah. and, and I know I probably should jump them again on the plates at night but then we have them jumping three different times during the day and that's just <laughs> don't want and they're, they're like uh stop please yeah, yeah they're like, stop. Like, I, I know well, I know sign you know there's gonna be some you know, scientists out there, well, you got to better validate that. My guys feel better when they do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, the bottom line is like here, we're not scientists. We're just trying to win and anecdotally feel better. So, you know. Yeah. And then kind of over time, like you'll see that that average relative concentric force and the RFD, they, they go up and they, they start to stay there, you know, and they're not dipping. They're not having these. And then you can just kind of start to build everything kind of normalizes. You can start to build the profile that you want for that guy. Um, so that that's one of the the biggest things that, that we do. Um, yeah. So this, this is making a ton of sense to me. So for just to clarify, you probably already answered this, but I'm just picking it all up. I'm going to have to re-listen to this actually take notes. Um, um, uh, for if you're trying to extend impulse for someone, uh, that's going to be someone that probably is already pretty good at breaking and they're more momentum or propulsive based. Is that kind of, but you need to extend impulse for them. Or am I so looking at that backwards? They, so, so usually those guys are, they utilize stretch shortening cycle very, very well, and they, they can't hit extension. Think about it. Like, these guys are the guys, like, one of the, the things that I look for if I've never, if I, if I didn't have a, let's put it this way, if I didn't have a force plate, right, and I was looking, because when I worked at Lindenwood and we, I started doing this, doing a lot of force plate stuff with, with Eric, I didn't have a force plate, right? And I, I had these hockey players and I had men's hockey and women's gymnastics. I was the, the head strength coach for, and I, I had to look at the athlete and I looked at the way they moved. And one of the biggest things I, I actually saw was have them do an RFE, right? 
how does that person do an RFE? Do they short leg it or do they go all the way down and all the way up? It's gonna almost, almost 100% of the time, if that guy short legs and he goes through a small range of motion and that's what he's, don't tell him how to do the exercise, right? If they kind of go through a very, very short range of motion and they don't go through the full range all the way up and all the way down, they're going to be someone who has a high RFD or they have, you know, that, that kind of stretch shortening. And then the other guys are, are more momentum based. Like it, it works a lot and you start to build a program off of that. Um, so that, that's one that thing. That makes I, a ton of sense. That's awesome. Just, that's really I, would, I would just look at the way that your athletes move, you know, uh, just say, hey, because, you know, the majority of your listeners probably won't have force plate, right? Mm. And it's great that you have the technology, but maybe going into kind of the, the art, it, art of coaching, like, look at the way your athletes move, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, do they short leg it all the time? Like, if they're doing something, do they never get into extension, you know? Um, are they always moving quickly? You know, are they very, very, they're very, very sympathetically driven in the way they do everything. Like those guys are, they're, they're going to have that natural ability. And then you look at the people who, you know, they look slower, but they're, they're, they're able to, to hit extension. They're able to do everything that way. Like those guys probably have a higher, higher, um, propulsion from that impulse, right? Your bigger athletes will probably have a higher, um, propulsion from that impulse because it's hard to decelerate you know, a lot of weight. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that, uh, that gets you into whole nother kind of a whole nother can of worms when you're, when you're looking at it, but let's, let's ju- just look at the way your athletes move, you know? Yeah. No, and that's, they that's beautiful. That's and beautiful. Can, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Keep going. Keep going. No, just, ju- just, just see, you know, like really just, just see that the, the way that they move and kind of how they go about things. Cause how they do something is kind of how they're going to do everything. Um, and I, I I guess one other thing I wanted to say, looking at that, looking at all of those different metrics is one of the most underrated things will be counter movement depths that you probably should take a look at. Um, because you can go, you can go through a very, very short range of motion. Guys can, when I tell guys how to jump, I don't tell them anything. I say jump because again, they're going to pre-select, they're going to have their strategy in their mind. about you're going to have some guys that will say, okay, and they just jump. And then you're going to have other guys who are, are very, very curious. They'll say, why, why aren't you telling me how, how far down should I go? Whatever you think, man, that's what I'll say. And then over time, you'll see that counter movement depth. Again, you'll look at the metrics and, and it will kind of stay steady. And it's important to see that because the, the depth can affect other metrics as well. And it could be also a sign of, of maybe they're not going as low because some type of injury. And then you look, you got to kind of start breaking into those layers too. That was another thing that I want to make sure I touched on with. Yeah, that can be, can, it can swing, swing some things other ways. So it's important to kind of see that. And, you know, if someone's just having a bad day and they just do it, like throw those jumps out. Yeah. Yeah. That's so that's tying in nicely what you're just saying about RFEs. I mean, you can, you can see from the depth, you know, what's going on with the, with the, like an impulse and stuff like that. That's, that makes a ton of sense. So uh, I think one of the, one of the, how I kind of thought of that was I looked when it was like my first year with Eric was he had one guy doing an RFE that was half kind of half range of motion. And the other guy was doing a full range of motion. And I was like, Eric, wait, what, why is this guy doing a half range RFE? He's like, well, if you he goes do a, do a half range of motion RFE, see how it feels. Now do a full range of motion RFE. 
you're like, oh yeah, it, you're way more anterior chain quad dominant if you're doing a half RFE. And if you do a full one, you're gonna be more posterior chain dominant. Like it, it's, it's the way it is, right? Feel it, go through it. Um, so that, that was one thing where I was like, maybe I should just look at the way the guy moves, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, this is, this is great stuff. I, I think that, um, and then too, you just talk about look, like I love that, especially for some of the coaches that I know that are listening that are again, you know, probably like younger. I have a lot of younger coaches that listen to this stuff. Um, I know as a younger coach, I used to get so caught up with like, well, this is the way you do an exercise, but that's beautiful letting them kind of almost tell you a story. And then you can determine how the loading strategy and the movement strategy should be for that particular exercise rather than having some one size fits all. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, there, there is really no one size fits all as far as the way you're doing it. But again, the way that you coach an exercise will directly affect the way that force is produced. So, you know, sometimes the athletes have just never been told one way to do it or the other, or, you know, they've been just doing it by themselves, you know, so that, that that's the way they naturally default. Again, it's your movement strategy because of their, their feedback loops because of everything, you know, you're, you're looking and you're saying, okay, well, no, that's the way they move. Is this an ongoing battle for you just in terms of, you mentioned art of coaching and everything, um, an ongoing battle between kind of, oh, you probably have enough reps now where you're comfortable with it. I know for me, I would get very caught up in the weeds on the data sometimes and forget that, like you said, sometimes you just need to watch these dudes and, and it's all about providing conversation, moving the conversation forward about how to develop these guys. So is it sometimes hard to kind of, meld the science and the art together is that pretty easy for you now since you've had a lot of experience with it uh i i i would say it's it's gotten easier as the years have gone on and and luckily i've been able to learn from some very very sharp people in nelson and, and eric and now mike barwis where it's like you know you got to be able to separate because there's no one size fits all for literally anyone right so if i were to tell if i was to tell you right now if someone has a low breaking RFD, front squat, right? That's kind of the way, uh, that's what I've heard from a lot of people. Well, that's gonna be kind of anterior chain dominant, right? Well, you've gotta be able to peel back the layers and what you're doing, and you've gotta have a more robust kind of way to look at it as far as your, your testing to say, well, someone might have a really, really low breaking RFD because they have a hip impingement and that nerve is blocked and they can't actually shoot any impulse down, right? So they're not able to, to decelerate because of, because of a, an issue there. And then you go and you try to front squat them and we know that that's probably not the best thing for that guy, right? But if you were just to go off of the force plate stuff, you would say, oh, he's got an issue, he's got an issue there, let's just uh, front squat him, right? And that's, you can't do that. And, and with, at least with our, with our population, literally everything matters. And, every single test I try to look and I try to apply it, whether it's our on ice testing or whether it's our off ice strength testing, power testing, or, you know, range of motion testing or the isometric testing, it all needs to fit into one picture and you need to be able to apply it and say, this is what's going on. So like I said, it, the force plate allows us to have a greater conversation and to get everyone involved, you know? So if you're seeing something and we'll video every jump, so we'll be able to see what's going on joint by joint. And we will say, hey, you know, check his ankle dorsiflexion. I, I, I think this is why it might be going off. You know, he had an issue earlier on in the year, um, you know, and to be honest, and when we do the isometric testing, you know, he's, his, his left ankle's weak. You know, it's just, can you take a look? 
you know, and, and that's kind of the way that we go about it is I don't know everything and I'll never will. And I hope what I'm doing now and, you know, five years is, is way better and way more concise, but I know that there's people around me in my high performance team that are more skilled at doing other things that can see things in a different lens. So, like I said, it's kind of on the front lines of, you know, referring out and seeing what you can do. Um, and then just trying to get ahead of things. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I like that a lot. What you mentioned too there, like that got me, cause you were, you've talked a lot about biomechanic, like looking at things through a biomechanical or neurological lens. And I think for me, based on the discussions I've had this week with a couple coaches, again, like we've only talked about like, Oh, if he's bad at anterior break it or, you know, breaking forces, then let's anterior load him with a front squat and that can solve our problem. But we have to look at it through multiple lenses. You're just referring to the bi- like that biomechanical side of things there. Right. Yeah. Like it, you know, it might, it might be as simple with, with our guys, you know, they're in a boot for, for a game, it's two and a half hours. And then, you know, for practice, like an hour, you know, they, they're in a boot for the majority of the things. So they, they're getting artificial ankle stability and, and that can a lot of times just wreak havoc on, on you know, their, their ankle. And it's maybe it's because of a biomechanical issue where they're just a little bit impinged in their ankle. And we just, you know, let's do a voodoo floss and let's go through some range of motion and, and kind of go from there, right? Let's unlock it, and then let's repattern that thing, that movement, and then let's see if that will that will help. Uh, so it, it's an ongoing battle where you know you can't. There's no one way to look at it. Um, I think that's sometimes when when you can get in a lot of trouble because you need to have other layers of testing and other ways of of, of programming to go off. There, there's no black box. That's why I don't like black box solutions because they can really, really put you in, you or your athletes in, in a vulnerable position of, you know, one size fits all when, especially in the professional setting where our guys, you know, a lot of times are not great movers off the ice, but on the ice, they're phenomenal. So they're compensating through somewhere. And that's usually the case with, with a lot of professional athletes. They're just master compensators. So you need to know exactly what's going on at every joint or what's going on as far as, every muscle and, and be able to kind of build it off from there and then see, can they put it all together synergistically in something trying to produce maximal mechanical muscle power, such as an counter movement jump. Can they put it all together? Right. So that that's kind of the way that I look at it. No, this is, this is great, man. I, I really appreciate this because it's definitely directing my thought. Like, you know, for me, I definitely have gone down like one specific rabbit hole with this and this discussion's really kind of opened it back up to realize like there's a lot more to the picture than just the neuro side or how to load something to increase the metric we're looking for. So that's, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate that. I mean, yeah. you, you start to, you, you think in the beginning that it's very easy. And I guess it's kind of the, <laughs> the evolution of, 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 of being a strength coach where, you, you know, I bet you if we had this conversation three years ago, I would say, yep, exactly. That's exactly how you do it. There's no other way around it, but it's, it's really not, um, you know, and just I, the biggest thing that I've been able to have, you know, is people around me like, um, you know, Eric and Nelson and, and Dean Little with the Mets who, and Mike where we challenge each other and we say, hey, you know, have you ever thought of this? Have you ever thought of that? And you kind of go back and forth and then, you know, maybe it changes your your view on something or maybe, you know, what what you thought might not always be true for one athlete, but it's true for the other. And um, you know, it's, it's just 
it's really, really brought me to a point where I'm like, I don't know, you know, maybe, <laughs> you know, like, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we didn't even get it really into asymmetries and, and how different, you know, things can be affected by that. But there's, there's, there's a variety of different things that you what you need to look at. And, um, you know, if one, one metrics way higher than the other, you've got to figure out what the issue is and kind of move from there. Um, and especially with elite athletes, you're, you're not going to be able to find that in, in a black box solution. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I know, uh, Matt Jordan at the university of Calgary, I believe it was, was, um, talking about how a lot of us will, when we see an asymmetry, especially post injury, we assume it's a, a strength discrepancy from limb to limb. And he was saying that, you know, isn't even necessarily often the case. I think that's kind of like maybe an example of what you're talking about there, right? Like we can't just assume an asymmetry means one particular thing is going on that's causing it. It could be a plethora of issues. Exactly. And I mean, I think it's well known now, I think for everyone, especially elite athletes where they're going to have an asymmetry to one side and there's healthy bandwidth. Again, it's, Usually for what I found is anywhere up to 12% to one side is fine. 12 to 17 is, you know, maybe you're playing with a little bit of fire, you know, it's kind of that, that yellow and then 18 plus you got to kind of look at it. Um, so what, what one thing is you could be looking at the average or you need to cluster all of them together and see, because there's going to be, there should be a variance in the way that that guys are loading it and jumping. Um, so you could get, you know, a, an average asymmetry of, you know, 0%, but, or you could get, you know, an average asymmetry of something where it it looks okay, but it's really not, or it could be vice versa. You know what I mean? Um, So one of the things you need to to realize, I think it was an Altus, um, one of the Altus chats where they're talking about uh, variability in human movement and that you're never going to do the same thing twice as far as a skill right you're never going to activate the same amount of musculature that you will you, you'll have a, a movement pattern but it'll never be exactly the same that's going to be the same for your jump. so you're going to see o- over time that there's a good variability in guys who are healthy and guys with chronic issues will start to see a lot of things everything will kind of come together and it always looks the same right and then that's when you kind of start to get the, the alarm start to go off so you yeah. might have some you might have someone who's a 10% asymmetry and that's green and that's great, but you see that it's every single time it's 10% to the left in the eccentric deceleration and asymmetry, right? And that's going to start getting some bells and whistles going off in your head where, huh, I don't know. And then it, it could be, sometimes what we saw was um, in periods of, and this was more, more in baseball was we had some stretches where we play, you know, 21 straight days. And, you know, in the beginning, things looked fine. And then they're constantly doing the same skill over and over again in baseball, where by the time that 21st day hit and we were in the National League where guys are playing every single day, that asymmetry has crept over because they have these chronic issues to, to where it's a, it could be a, an issue, you know what I mean? So it's kind of seeing that, saying, is there a variance in the way that they move and, and going from there? And then again, peeling back the layers, looking at the metrics that you see, seeing the other testing, tying everything in and utilizing the team around you. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. I, I really like that a ton. Dude, I'm, I really even have to go back and listen to this and take some fucking notes. So <laughs> I appreciate it. It's, it's great stuff. Um, before I let you go, just one other thing I wanted to hit. 
Um, obviously, you know, you went over your career at the beginning and um, any, for the young strength coaches out there that might be like aspiring to kind of get where you are, or do what you're doing. Um, any, any recommendations or, or words of wisdom for them? Yeah, I guess it, it's funny. If you were to ask a lot of other uh, NHL strength coaches, I still am considered a young, young strength coach. So I'm still, you know, I'm still trying to, to navigate everything around. But uh, what I would say is one of the biggest pieces of advice that I got was from, from Nelson is, you know, be the person you'd like to meet, you know? Um, so that, that's one of the biggest things is, you know, depending upon where you want to go, you're, you're going to work long hours in strength and conditioning. Um, so you're going to be locked inside usually a small office with either someone you're work with people who you're working with and it will be, absolute hell if you don't like the person that you're working with you know and if you're someone you know so for me it's just you know be a really really good person try to help other people and from that you know um people are going to take notice you know and, and that's the biggest thing where you know i've gotten to where i am today but i've never really had selfish motives i've just always tried to help out people around me you know whether it's giving the head coach a workout or you know talking to one of the prospects, people start to take notice. And if you're in a good place with good people, they're like, you know what? I really like this guy. I'm going to keep him around. And then if you are being mentored by someone who who's a very, very high skill, like, like Nelson or Eric, you know, like they're, they say, you know what? I want to teach this kid because I really like him. And then you just start to start to go from there, you know, and if you're starting out and you're an intern and your job is to take out the trash, do the, best damn job you can at taking out the trash <laughs> yep, because yep. no one's going to give you any more any more responsibilities if you can't do that you think about it like we have multi-million dollar athletes if i can't trust you to take out the trash every day and wipe down the racks can i trust you to coach your lip no i can't so doing the really really little things really well having a great attention to detail and then moving your way up will will really help you and just being a being overall just a good guy or or know a good woman like it's it's absolutely vital because i will not take someone to as an intern or would not hire anyone um as an assistant strength coach if i didn't think that they were a good person because you can always teach someone you can always bring them along but you can't really change their personality yeah you know and that's one of the biggest things you know like do you no one's ever going to know it all so if you go in there and you think you know it all and maybe maybe we're doing something a little different than you ever saw and you don't understand it and you think it's wrong. Well, it's probably not because there's so many different ways to skin the cat. Right. And if it works, it works. You know, if you see something in, you know, someone injures someone, you're like, well, that probably wasn't very smart. Take a note and realize don't do that next time. You know, like, uh, kind of the, the, the way that I look at it. Yeah. That, that's my biggest thing is, you know, just be the person you like to meet and, and kind of go on from there. Well, I mean, you, know, you can take it from me too, for anyone listening. I was the champion water bottle slash Gatorade stalker when I entered for the Buffalo Bills a few years ago. So, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I um, when I started with the Blues, man, I was, you know, one of the biggest parts of my job was I would stay late and I just help out the equipment guys. I folded towels, so like, you know, I, my first year we uh, we made it to the Western Conference Finals and. We had our first round. It was a game seven against the Chicago Blackhawks. And, uh, oh, that was an epic series. I actually remember that series. Yeah. And yeah, it was, it was good. So we had a game seven at home. So I, I was, I was working it and I kind of gambled because I had a woman's gymnastics, uh, 
women's gymnastics, they were doing a 6 a.m. lift the next day. But I was like, oh, maybe we'll finish it in six or maybe over. It didn't work out that way, right? <laughs> and, you know, I was just kind of like, you know what? I, I did this to myself. I'm not going to skimp out on helping everyone around me. So I, I was there until three in the morning folding towels with one of the equipment guys. And then I went home. I slept for, you know, an hour, if that, and got back up. And I just said, hey, this is just part of the process. And, you know, I didn't skimp on helping everyone else. And I got, I got to, you know, the lift for, for women's gymnastics. And I, and I just did it, you know. And, yeah. and that's part of the things too, like, you know, realize what you're getting into and, and kind of go from there. Like, it's not always going to be great. You're going to, but it's, it's one of the things you got to do. Awesome, man. Rob, thank you so much. Anything you want to um, plug where people can find you on social media, any projects you're working on website, anything like that? No, I mean, I guess if you want to follow me on Twitter, I got to, I don't know what my Twitter name is. Let me, <laughs> I know I, you know, I, I just, I'm, probably so one of the things I got to get bit better at is, is social media um I don't you know I, like I have an Instagram but it's, it's I, I posted one picture in the last four years so I mean if you want to follow me go ahead dude but, you're um, like the you're like the Olympics man very special <laughs> yeah let me I don't even you know what well, if you can't it, find it, oh you got it you got it okay yeah I, I got it. it it's r underscore campbell now, underscore 90 because I was born in 90 so it's okay. got real creative and yeah I mean I don't I don't really tweet much I I don't do that I, I maybe maybe I should maybe I shouldn't I don't know but um <laughs> and that, that's me on Twitter and then uh I got I got a real real cool Instagram name that it's more just pictures of me with my 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 nephew and stuff like that but it's uh Geez, I don't even know what it is. It's uh, oh, it's it's uh, Insta underscore soup. I think I made that about six years ago. Oh, maybe that's when incredible. I first started. That's I incredible. Thought it cool, <laughs> I thought it was kind of a, a good name, kind of you know, like instant soup. But uh, yeah, I mean, those are the two places you can find me. And um, you know, if anyone wants to chat more or you know has has anything to to add on, I'd love to love to chat. Dude, Rob, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate the time. Um, and uh, yeah, like I said, a lot of takeaways for me, so I appreciate it. All right, thanks, Jack. I appreciate it, man.